Uh, so we're thrilled about the chance to hear from, from Miles this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, Luke Lowe is going to read our scripture, uh, and yes. then we're going to hear from Miles. So let me pray for us. Yeah. Hey, mighty God, Father, uh, we are so thankful for uh, your love and the value that you have placed on every single person that you sacrificed your own son as a value to redeem and to rescue uh, each and every person. And so we pray that this morning that your Holy Spirit would be active as we hear uh, from Miles, and as we hear from Scripture, uh, that you would help us to see uh, more clearly um, how the walls uh, that exist need to be broken down, that your love may be shown more completely uh, in this world today. Amen. Amen. Hi, I'm Luke Lowe, and this is Joshua 5, 10 through 15. On the on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. They, the day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. How are you doing? I'm Miles McPherson, pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego. And it is my honor to speak to you today about a topic that's so critical uh, to the health of our lives, our country. As we all know, our country is so divided and become more and more divided every day. And my prayer and um, hope is that this message will encourage you and give you tools on what you can do in a very practical way to bring healing uh, to our country, to our families, to our communities, to our schools, and to our churches. And so before I start, I wanna pray for you and pray that God would um, prepare your heart uh, for what, what you're gonna hear and anything that's gonna challenge you that you would receive it humbly and be able to put it into action. So let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. And I pray that you move on the hearts of everybody who's listening, uh, that you prepare the hearts for what you have to say and give me the words to say to make this message crystal clear in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my name is Miles Pearson. I grew up in New York, had a dream to play in the NFL. Uh, I played in Pop Warner High School, college, went to University of New Haven, was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams in 1982 and got cut, which means I got fired, and then went and played uh, for the San Diego Chargers for four years. Uh, but about three years ago, when I was eight years old, actually, it wasn't three years ago, when I was eight years old, uh, Martin Luther King was killed. And I remember when he was killed, what I felt and what I thought. I felt how unfair it was, but I thought, what can we do? See, I grew up in a very segregated world. I grew up in New York in a neighborhood called Lakeview, which was mostly black. 
And the first eight years of my life, I went to a, a school in the neighborhood that was 100% white. Got harassed in the white neighborhood because I wasn't white. Got harassed in the black neighborhood because I wasn't black enough. I have uh, four of my grandparents from Jamaica. One grandmother's white. Another grandmother's half Chinese and black. And my, other, my two grandfathers are black. So I have the United Nations in my blood and, and in my family. So in my family, we all got along, obviously. And in my neighborhood, there was black. And my, where I went to school was white. And my football teams that I played on were always black and white for the most part. And we all got along. So I lived in this divided world and was dealing with racism all my life and always felt like, what can I do? And for all those years, I was thinking that. So three years ago, getting back to that, I started writing a book called The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. And here's why we get the, here's where we get that title. We live in an us versus them culture. Um, you're, you're either for or against the police. You're either for or against Black Lives Matter. You're either Republican or Democrat. You're either for or against immigrants. And, and everybody feels so pulled apart, us against them. And if you pick us, you are inevitably against them. And that's what everybody feels like. And once you're on one side, you feel like you have to be the enemy of the other side. The story in the Bible, Joshua chapter five, Joshua is leading the Israelites into the promised land. And in chapter five, verse 13, it says that he was confronted by the commander of the Lord's army. And he says to the commander of the Lord's army, are you for us or our adversary? And this is the mentality that we have today. If you're not on my side, you must be my enemy. And if you're on my side and you agree with the other side, we will, we will cancel you because you're a sellout and we will <laughs> throw you to the wolves. And this divisive mentality is even in the church. It's in every area, every segment of society. But as believers, we have to raise above that and not be activists as much as prophetic and call people to a third option of honoring what we have in common. I want to talk to you today about how we got divided, but more importantly, how we can come together. And in this us versus them culture, how we can come together is by living the third option and honoring, giving value, placing value on what we have in common. And I'm going to propose to you, and as you look around the room where you're at, or, or you may be on Zoom, whatever you, wherever you're at, that you think about all the people you know, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different cultures, uh, different genders, that you are more similar, we are all more similar than different. That we have more similarities than differences. I want you to think about someone who lives completely around the other side of the planet from you. That uh, they have a different culture, they don't speak your language at all, they don't look like you at all, and I'm going to propose to you that you are more similar to them than different. That you have a brain like them, you have pretty much all the organs they have. Uh, you love your family like they do. You love food like they do. You love to sleep like they do. You have a purpose or you want to know your purpose like they do. You have gifts and talents like they do. You're, you're human like they do. Uh, uh, you are made in the image of God. You are fully human. Uh, you speak a language. You, you like to give and receive love. You like to give and receive forgiveness, or at least you want to receive forgiveness. 
Um, you bleed red. You have DNA. You have bones and muscles and a heart and a stomach and intestines. I can go on and on and on and on about all the things you have in common. And I'm going to propose to you that the only difference, the major difference, is that you and we are all different variations of the same thing. Even if they're a different color than you, they have a color, you have a color. It's just a different variation of color. We are all more similar. And what we have been trained to do is find something that's different and leverage that as a reason to be divided. What I'm going to propose to you is that if we can honor, give honor to the fact that we are more similar. I was in a, in a prison speaking and this white supremacist was walking around the track. Um, it was in the yard of the prison. I had just spoken and all the guys were standing out there and these three white supremacists were walking around the track. One was in front and two were behind him. They had no shirt on and they were walking around. It was a, it was a pathway around the field, the yard. The yard was grass technically. And I went up to him and called him over and he got this close to me. We had a very brief conversation, but he was about this close to me. And what we didn't realize is that he and I were more similar than different. But besides all the things I just said to you, we were 99.5% genetically identical. You were 99.5%, 0.3% genetically identical with everybody on the planet. We are more similar than different. So I'm going to give you a few ways we can bridge this gap and give honor. And I say honor, I mean place value. Imagine if when you met somebody, you place value on what you shared. First, let me talk about how we, how we got divided. Um, sociologists um, describe how we self-segregate. They describe it by calling it grouping. We all place ourselves in different groups. All of you out there are in multiple groups. If you're a guy, you're, that's a group. That's your in-group. If you're a guy, you're part of the in-group of guys. That's in-group. I'm in that group. If you're a dad, I'm a dad. That's a group. If you're a dad, all of us dads are in the dad in-group. If you're a granddad, which I am, that's another group. So all of us grandfathers are part of the grandfather in-group. Women are a group. Single women are a group. Married women are a group. Women with babies are a group. Women with grown children are a group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So whatever group you're in, that's your in-group. If you're not in that group, you're part of the out-group. So you got in-group, out-group. And, and once you identify the people of your in-group, you express in-group bias. In-group bias is your tendency to give preferential treatment to people in your group. And I'm going to read a list to you from my book. This is the book, Third Option. I'll read something to you. These are nine characteristics of in-group bias. This is what we express towards people who are in my in-group or people who are like me. In other words, if you're a dad, me, you're like me in the sense that we're both dads. If you're a guy, you're like me in the sense that we're both guys, okay? So this is how we treat people of our in-group. I am more comfortable with those who are like me. I am more inclined to spend time socially with those who are like me. I am more patient with those who are like me. I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those who are like me. I express more grace when mistakes are made by those who are like me. It's easier to communicate with those who are like me. I assume I will get along easier with those who are like me. I am more willing to go out of my way to help those who are like me. 
and I possess more positive assumptions about those who are like me. If you're in my in-group, I give you favor. It's something we naturally do. Why? Because we feel comfortable with people who are like us. They're people we know, we're familiar with. We understand how they think. We understand you know, what they, how they act. And so we can fit right in. It's just a natural thing we do. Now, the opposite's true. People who are not like you, we do the opposite. I am less comfortable with those who are not like me. I am less inclined to spend time socially with those who are not like me. I am less patient with those who are not like me. I offer less grace to when mistakes are made by those not like me. It is more difficult to communicate with those who are not like me. I don't assume I will get along with those who are not like me. I'm less willing to go out of my way to help those who are not like me. And I possess fewer, whew, this one's hard, fewer positive assumptions about those who are not like me. Now, gender's a group, occupation's a group, socioeconomics is a group, and this is a group. Imagine if you gave preferential treatment to people who are like you, and you gave less preferential treatment to those who are not like you, that's racism. And that's what people, when they experience racism, that's what they experience, out-group discrimination versus in-group bias. Now, one of the ways to make someone part of your out-group part of your in-group, and then one of the ways to convert someone part of your out-group as part of your in-group, it's so simple. Just find something that you have in common. If you find somebody that has hair and you have hair, guess what? You can talk about hair <laughs> and you can talk about all the issues you have with your hair and all the, the, the way you take care of your hair. And all of a sudden you have something in common and watch what's going to happen. That's going to snowball to all these other things you have in common. It's not really that complicated. Most of the time when people are prejudiced and people are discriminated because they don't know people. They think that they're so different and so foreign. And they just talk about them. And so I want to give you a few ways to bridge that gap. Number one, we have to acknowledge that we all have blind spots. A blind spot is not knowing what you don't know. It is the gap between what you intend to do and accomplish by what you say or do, what your, your intent and your impact is the gap between your intent of your words and actions and your impact. Now, having a blind spot is not knowing what you don't know, is that you think you know something and you don't even know you don't even know. And one of the ways we get that is from our social narrative. Social narrative is a story that shapes how you see the world. All your life, especially growing up, you've been getting all this information from your family, from your friends, from your neighborhood. And that information shapes how you see the world. That information determines in your mind who's safe, who's not safe, who's smart, who's not smart, who works hard, who doesn't work hard, what news station to listen to and what news station not to listen to, how to interpret the news. Uh, on this way and how to interpret the news this way. And so you, you get all that information when you grow up and you have this perspective. And then <laughs> the social reinforcement is that you hang around people who have the same narrative, the same story, the same prescription through which they see the world. 
The problem is it is very limited. It's only what you have learned and it creates blind spots. In other words, here are the blinders. Here's how I see the world. Everything over here, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know what I don't know. The problem is you're one of 7 billion people. That means there's 7 billion perspectives. And we don't even realize that we don't even know we don't know. I would imagine that there are a lot of you out there who are right-handed. Uh, matter of fact, if you're in a room with people, whether or not, just raise your hand if you're right-handed. I want to let you know that the world was made by pretty much right-handed people for right-handed people. Now, I'm left-handed. All of us left-handers, raise your hand. We have the disadvantage. We are the minority. If you were in school, when you were at school, the desk was on your right elbow. And you got to put your elbow on the desk in school and write. If you were left-handed like all of us left-handers, we were out here in space drawing our name and the ink was getting on our hand because we were writing over the ink. Um, if you are right-handed, you can get a right-handed catcher's mitt at any sporting goods store. If you're left-handed, good luck. You'll drive all around town trying to find a catcher's mitt. If you're right-handed, you can get a driver in golf, any golf shop. Since the new, the new drivers and new clubs come out, they're all right-handed. Try to get a left-handed. Uh, driver. You'll be driving all around. And what happens is while you're home playing catch with your right-handed catches, man, your left-handed friend is driving around town and you're like, what is taking you so long? I got mine just like that. It's called the right privilege. It is the privilege or the advantage of being right-handed in a right-handed world. It is a blind spot. And the blind spot is that you don't even know you have the advantage because it's all you've ever known. And you've never been left-handed. You've never had to see the world and experience the world as a left-handed person. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't like left-handed people. It doesn't necessarily mean that you designed it to make the left-handed people have the disadvantage. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't remove the disadvantage just because you don't realize it. The disadvantage is there. The inconvenience is there. It's a blind spot. And what we don't, what we don't realize is that often... If you are ethnically around your in-group all the time and you are receiving in-group bias all the time and you are not the out-group, you are not the other, you don't know what it means and it's like to be the other. And it's called the blind spot. Now, we all have blind spots, no matter what you look like, no matter how much money you make, no matter where you live, we all have blind spots. Matter of fact, I often ask groups, I asked the ladies in the group, how many of you ladies know a creepy dude? <laughs> and ladies always start laughing because I think every woman knows some creepy dudes. And then I challenged the guys to ask the ladies in your life if you're the creepy dude. <laughs> and, and, and dudes don't realize they have blind spots because they're just creepy by nature. <laughs> and and, 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 we don't, and a lot of times guys don't even know. They just think being creepy is normal. Uh, it's a blind spot. So number one, we all have blind spots. Number two, um, convert, change the word, eliminate the term those people and call people your brother, your sister, your neighbor. The greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor as yourself. 
if we're supposed to love God with our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves, how is it that the church is so divided? How is that so many people who say they love God are so divided and prejudiced in, in a lot of cases? Um, it's because of the idea of labels. See, if I call you something less than my neighbor, if I call you a thug, if I call you a white this, a black this, an illegal, if I dehumanize you by giving you a label less than neighbor, I permit myself not to love you because I'm supposed to love my neighbor. But if you're not my neighbor, I don't need to love you. And we do it all the time. If you just watch the news, the news will give you labels. Uh, for everybody under the sun, because once you have that label, what happens is you apply everything that's connected to that label to those people. In other words, if you call someone a thug, everything you think of as a thug gets on that person. And that label tells you what to expect and it tells you what not to expect. For example, if the person's a thug, you expect them to be ignorant, violent, dangerous, you know, destructive, and you don't expect them to be kind friendly, smart, intelligent, necessarily. And so whatever label you put on someone, it is going to determine the expectation you have on them and it is going to be the filter through which you treat them and is going to limit or expand your ability to love them and give honor to what you have in common. And so one of the best ways to make that person part of your in-group is give them the same label you have. Neighbor, brother, sister. Because number one, you do not know them. I'm going to get to that in a minute. So convert those people to your neighbor, which will obligate you. It will want, it will humanize them because racism is when you see the humanity, the image of God in someone as less than yours. Give them the title neighbor, the same title you give yourself. This is why it's so important to love yourself and give yourself an honorable label. Give them the same honorable label. And all of a sudden, you will be able to love them and see them more for who they are than what your social narrative has determined them to be. Um, number three, um, give honor to people's color. Don't say you don't see color because you do. I remember the first time someone told me they didn't see my color. I thought they had eye stigmatism. I never heard that before. I I was like, what does that mean that you don't see someone's color? And they said, no, no, we see color. We just don't see your color. I was like, well, if you see colors, how do you know you don't see mine? I don't get that. Listen, even if you don't technically see red, blue, green, yellow, you'll see gray, blue, uh, gray, white, and black. Even when you close your eyes, you see black. So you can't not see color. Your brain processes millions and millions of bits of information every second and 90% comes through your eyes. Your eyes see shape, depth, motion, all kinds of stuff, and your eyes process color. You can't not see color. When you say you don't see color, what you're saying is that I'm invalidating everything that your color represents in your life, your heritage, your culture, your experience. There was a... Um, a young lady, she was white. She went to Hawaii to get a tan. She went to Hawaii, laid in the sun for seven days to change her color. Fine. She comes home. Now she is brown. She went from white to brown. Okay. <laughs> Just think about that. She wants everybody to see her color. 
And this guy who she was trying to impress didn't ask her out. And she was boo-hooing to me because she was throwing her, boop, boop, throwing her little shoulder, little uh, sh um, spaghetti strap uh, shoulder. Now it's brown, her, her, her shoulder, throwing it in this guy's face. Boop, boop. And he wasn't biting. <laughs> well, <laughs> he wasn't He wasn't being attracted to her and calling her up. Um, and she was complaining to me. I'm like, it's amazing how we celebrate the brown we get in Hawaii, the tan we get in Hawaii, but we invalidate the tan that we get in the womb. Listen, <laughs> it's amazing how white people are, I think, more colored than black people. Here's what I mean by that. In the springtime, they're white. In the summertime, they're either brown or red. And then when they get cold, they turn blue. Culture says white people, people of color, division. In reality, we're all different shades of brown. In reality, we're all just different shades of the same color. When you get a tan, your melanin cells that you already have are activated by the sun and, and it makes, and the melanin cells, which are brown, are activated and you get a tan. That's what that is. And so it, let's, instead of um, invalidating color, let's celebrate color. Let's celebrate color. Um, number four, um, have a race consultation, not a race conversation. Here's what I mean by that. Because you see color, every time you talk to somebody, you are having a race conversation in your head. You know you're talking to a white guy. You know you're talking to a black guy. You know you're talking to a Mexican guy. You know you're talking to an Asian person. You may not know if they're from what part of Asia they're from, but at least you know they're Asian. And, and you're having in your head this conversation. You're asking yourself, what are they? You're asking yourself, where are they from? There's nothing wrong with that. It's like seeing a rose saying, that's a red rose. That's a white rose. I want to pick one. It's just process information. The problem comes is when your social narrative, the information you learn throughout past the time about those people is that you, the problem is when you see them and you put a label on them without getting to know them. I was at a, um, a golf course and this guy who worked at the golf course picked me up in the cart. He had this little shirt on, white guy in shape, 25 years old, and he picked me up and wanted to give me a ride to my car. So I got in the car. We're talking. I said, hey, man, where are you from? He's from Iowa. He's in shape, looks like a football player. I said, how old are you? He said, 25. So I want you to imagine this white dude from Iowa in shape, um, uh, golf, you know, shorts, college shirt. <laughs> white guy from Iowa, 25, in shape. Okay. I said, what's your name? He said, DeAndre. <laughs> so, so I know you're, if you're laughing right now, that's not bad. It's probably very normal because I would not have imagined a white dude from Iowa named DeAndre. I never met a white dude from anywhere named DeAndre, but much less Iowa, right? And he said it like his whole tone changed. It's like he took on the whole personality of DeAndre. That's how he said it. I busted up laughing and he said, I get that all the time. I was like, where did you get that name? You know, his parents loved the name. I, it was a whole long story. The point is, is that in my head and in your head, you were having a race conversation. Cool. You were processing the information based on what you know. But that's a race conversation. A race consultation is where you suspend those assumptions and you let someone disclose to you who they are. Imagine if you met people and you, your goal was to get to know who they are. 
and to discover what you have in common and discover how amazing they are. That's the third option. So I want to encourage you, celebrate color, have race consultations, Um, convert those people to your neighbor, your brother, and acknowledge that you have blind spots. Um, And I pray that this message was encouraging to you and enlightening for you. I pray you get this book. We also have an e-course at thethirdoptiontraining.com, thethirdoptiontraining.com, an e-course, six weeks, it goes through all of this and more. And it's it's a fascinating journey uh, that take people on. And I just encourage you, let's be the solution and stop promoting the problem of division and be the solution of honor and unity. God bless you. It's Miles McPherson, and I'll be praying for you. Amen. I just realized something. I'm left-handed, I have no hair, and I might be the creepy dude. <laughs> I have a problem. But it's okay because we're all similar. All we, we, we don't have the hair. Well, not quite in common. <laughs> not quite yet. Um, Miles was so great. It's such an encouragement uh, to me, and I, we found you know, such value in that. I, this is such a process that's ongoing. I feel like I have so much to learn, and it's important for us to be in that posture of, of being able to learn. Um, you know, one thing, I'm not a, a pastor or a theologian, so you'll just, you know, give me grace. But I was just thinking about this lately. One of the things that, that struck me as being helpful was a lot of us, with Ben's encouragement, have been reading uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, by Peter Scazzaro. And he talks about how there's, you know, our, our lives are like an iceberg, right? There's a part of the iceberg that sits up above the surface that you can see, and then there's a bigger, deeper part that sits below the surface. And so he encourages us to think about our family background, like our parents, our grandparents, even our great-grandparents, and kind of who they were, their relationships, uh, their experience, and how that sort of sets the table for us, right? Like we show up, and sometimes I think we think, like we, you know, the story starts when we get there, right? But it's like we're actors showing up in the fourth act of the play, right? The, the action's already been happening. We show up and this table has been set for us. And that has a big impact on who we are. And so what Peter Schizero is encouraging us to do is then to partner with the Holy Spirit and say, what about that needs to be redeemed? What about that, you know, do I need to partner with the Holy Spirit to see uh, redemption and renewal in, in that part of who I am? And, you know, for me, I'm super thankful, personally, that my father had set a, such a great example of faithfulness and duty. Um, I'm a lot less thankful about the fact that my grandfather divorced my grandmother when she was suffering from tuberculosis, and he was a doctor. Um, that had a cascade of negative impact. Both those things are part of my legacy, right? And I have to be honest with myself about that and say, Lord, how do you want that to be redeemed? So when I think about you know, issues of race and loving my neighbor and crossing barriers, um, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's the same thing. Like we're part of a great big American family. And like my nuclear family, we have a story. And there's some really great things that I'm super thankful about in that story. And there's some stuff that's kind of rotten. And I need to be honest about both as part of that journey. But that's not where it stops, right? I want to partner with the Holy Spirit as part of a renewal of all things. In fact, at Vintage, sometimes we talk about we're partnering with God in the renewal of all things, which is basically, I think, a really nice way of saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And... You know, right here, right now, in this passing area, I feel so fortunate, just like Ben said, we feel so fortunate that there's so many people from so many different ethnicities 
we have such an opportunity because of that to lean in, to partner with the Holy Spirit and to say, you know, can we see more of your kingdom come? That kingdom where, there's more, where there will be more love and more justice. Anyway, just yeah. my ramblings. I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian, but I know where I can find one. <laughs> that's good. Thanks, man. That's really, that's really true. You know, I, I was just, miles was speaking, I just, I was so challenged by that idea of, of going to the other. I was thinking about, you know, Jesus, he's this, comes to earth, fully God, but fully human as well, this first century Jewish man who lived in this incredibly segregated culture. You know, the Jews were incredibly good at falling out with one another. There were the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, and then, obviously, outside of that kind of sense of the in-group, even in the Jewish world, there were then the, the Samaritans, and then there were the Romans. And there was just all these incredibly culturally complicated different kind of parts of what it meant to be a human being, even for Jesus. And yet, when you kind of look at Jesus and you think, like, who did Jesus call to be his followers? Who were the first disciples? Actually, they were an incredibly diverse bunch of Jewish people who would not have got on with one another at all if they'd been in any other space of life. Actually, what Jesus did was bring people together because he recognized that they could come together under this thing called the kingdom of God. You know, when Jesus suddenly goes off and he, he talks like in terms of miracles and all the stories that he does, it's like he goes to people like the Roman centurion, like he goes to the woman at the well, he has these incredible conversations across gender and different things like that. You know, he goes to tax collectors and all these kind of different other people and he includes them in like the kingdom story. And then as kind of Miles alluded to as well, I was, I was also just thinking about you know, the good Samaritan in you know, Luke 10 when Jesus tells that story. What does it mean to be a neighbor? And he, and he says like, actually there's this Jewish guy going up to the temple and he's robbed and left dead by the side of the road. And then who comes along? But two of his in-group, like the priest and the Levite, come past, and they go, nah, too complicated, too messy, we're not going there, we're out. And they walk past, and then who's the guy who actually comes to rescue him? Is the out guy, the out-group guy. And, and Jesus says, this is what it means to be a neighbor, is to go to the person who's not like us and to care and love them. And so um, I'm just grateful to, to Miles and just really grateful to, to John as well for being you know, brave or silly enough to, um, to kind of take us through a little journey these, these last months. Um, I know this is a really complicated and it's a very um, politically fraught conversation. Um, I know that you, you, know, you might read the fact that we're talking about this, that we think this is more important than all the other very important things that go on in the life of the church. That's not true at all. You know, we, we just realize that this is the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit is saying to us and we're just trying to journey through it well. Um, together. Um, and so I just want to leave you with, with before we worship, before we uh, invite the Holy Spirit to kind of speak to us again, three things I just want to invite you to do if you want to. Um, the first thing is, as Miles said, he's got that little course. It's a six-week course. Um, it's really good, totally non-political, totally good, the kind of same content that he's just spoken on. Um, we've asked our community group leaders if they would like to lead the groups through that, um, and we would really recommend that. And if you're not in a community group, but you just like to join one, even if it's just for the next six weeks to go through that little process, that little course, um, don't hesitate to reach out. You can talk to Deanne or talk to myself. Um, and we would be delighted to kind of hook you up with a community group. The second thing is, um, if you want to go a little bit deeper personally, um, as John mentioned, the diversity team have been looking at lots of different types of resources. Um, they're very diverse resources. Um, they don't agree with each other all. We don't necessarily agree with everything that any one of them has written, but they are helpful in the much as they get our brains kind of whirring and get us praying. And so John can hook you up with some of those. And then the third thing I want to just invite you to is over the next month, 
As Mal said, what would it look like for you to go and have a conversation with someone who is not like you? Uh, to go and take them for a coffee, to go for a meal, to do a Zoom, to take a walk with someone who's really in an outgroup to you. And not to go and tell them what you think about life, but to go and just hear what they've got to say. Just go and hear their story. I have so valued what John has done by bringing together the diverse ethnic parts of our community. And I've got to hear their stories of how they came to LA and what it's been like. It's helped me massively. So I just want to leave you with that kind of invitation. Go and find someone uh, over the next uh, month. And I don't just mean someone who sounds English, but you know, someone who is really very different.